This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, November 10th, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include TikTok has a new privacy policy that doesn't exactly seem to preserve privacy. We'll take a look. Zoom, your favorite video collaboration tool, is insisting you keep its Zoom software updated. And they've got an interesting way of making it happen for you. Internet of Things nutrition labels are coming. How much information will they tell you about the products that use them? And lockdown mode is a new extreme security feature in iOS and macOS. There's a reason they call it extreme. We take it for a test drive. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast. Veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing okay. We are recording on Tuesday, and Apple often releases stuff on Tuesday. But given that this is Tuesday, November 8th, otherwise known as Election Day in the U.S., I don't expect Apple to release anything. So we're not going to finish recording and find that Apple's dumped a new update or security update to anything. Let's start by talking about TikTok's new privacy policy. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? First of all, uh, there was a story a couple of weeks ago about TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, allegedly planning to monitor the locations of specific U.S. citizens. Now, TikTok denied this story. They said, no, our app can't be used to track U.S. citizens. We don't know what they're talking about. Meanwhile, Forbes, which published the original report, said they are standing by the report. Well, that was a couple weeks ago. Now, there's some new information. Apparently, TikTok has updated its privacy policy since then. And now the privacy policy states that they allow staff to access user data. It's made it very clear that staff can access user data. Wait, wait. They allow staff to access user data, which could be private stuff. Right. This could potentially include private things. And of course, I mean, there's kind of similar policies with just about any social network, but they're really concerning thing for a lot of people here is that because TikTok is owned by ByteDance, a Chinese company, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, their privacy with regard to the Chinese government being able to get access to whatever it is that you're using TikTok for. First of all, they'll have your email address that you signed up with. They'll probably have your IP address if you are not using a VPN when you're accessing TikTok, or if you've ever accidentally not had your VPN on when you're using TikTok, then very likely they have your home IP address at some point. And, and that's just a couple of things. They can get a lot of ideas about who you are as a person and your interests and how they might be able to sway you maybe to vote a certain way politically or, or who knows what else. Um, the Chinese government... Uh, some people think that they don't really like the American government and American citizens, right? And so that's a concern for a lot of people. Okay. We have a really interesting story about 31 people arrested in the European Union for stealing cars by hacking keyless technology. Now, as someone who has a new car, which runs on electricity and not dead dinosaurs, I find this really interesting. Now, my car is has one of these dongles like most cars have to open the car. It's a keyless start. So you just press a button to start the car. And what happened in this story is that a number of people bought an automotive diagnostic 
tool, which was used to replace the original software of the vehicles, allowing the doors to be opened and the ignition to be started without the actual key fob. Now, I've seen a lot of people on Facebook. I'm in a group for my car model, and a lot of people have these things they plug in. There's a port in the car someplace they can get diagnostic information and log information. I don't see the point, but it seems to me that what could have happened here is imagine a bunch of people bought this device on eBay and the people selling the device knew their addresses and then they could go to their homes and find where the cars were and boom. I like the way you're thinking, Kirk. This is this is very much thinking like an attacker. That's that's a good mindset, right? Yep. So going along those lines, I, I can imagine this could be a really serious problem, right? This this could happen just about anywhere. This particular case happened to be in the EU, but uh, you, you could have this happen easily in the U.S. or any other location in the world. So be careful uh, when you're buying things that plug into your car's diagnostic system. Think very carefully about where you're buying it from and make sure the manufacturer is reliable and the seller is reliable too. Remember too that even if you're buying something like this off of Amazon, for example, it's not always obvious on Amazon when you're buying from a third-party seller because things can still be sold, you know, with prime shipping and all that kind of stuff, but they're actually being sold in some cases by a third party and not by Amazon itself. So just be aware of that. And be very, be very cautious with anything that plugs into your car's diagnostic system. So let's go a step further. Be cautious with anything that's electronic that you buy. For example, I upgraded my Orbi Wi-Fi mesh system a few weeks ago, and I sold my previous one on eBay. Now, if I was clever, I could have put something into the Orbi device to access the data that was coming from that person's Wi-Fi network, couldn't I? Sure. Yeah, you could have put malicious firmware on there. You could have, you know, uh, installed some sort of uh, Trojan or something that that would beacon back to a, a server that you control, for example. And then you could effectively have that be part of your botnet. Uh, of course, you know, Kirk's not a bad guy. He's not going to do something like that. But this is something that you should consider. No, but the the possibility exists. Any electronic device that you buy used or third party sellers, as you mentioned, this is entirely possible. What if you buy a used phone from someone? It's a little bit harder to install something on a phone. But whenever I sell an Apple device, an iPhone, an iPad, a Mac, I always set it up installing the software. So when the person turns it on, they get the welcome screen, right? So they don't have a hassle. And the last Mac I sold, my M1 MacBook Air, I set it up like that. But what if I had managed to install some other software underneath. Right. And this is something that people should think about, too, when they're buying used electronics. Thankfully, Apple devices have an easy way that you can do a full factory reset. Um, even Macs actually have this now. If you're running a relatively recent version of Mac OS, you can do a, a an erase all content and settings kind of thing, just like you've been able to do on iPhones for many years and, and iPads as well. So this is something that I definitely recommend that people do if you're buying used Apple equipment make sure that even if someone it looks like someone else has already done that it's still a good idea to just wipe the whole thing and start from scratch and apple makes it easy to do that if you're buying an android device i would still recommend doing the same thing because again you don't know what somebody might have pre-installed on it it's better to just start from scratch it can be a little bit more difficult to set up an android phone from scratch but you can do that and probably should if you're if you're going to buy a third-party used android device 
Okay, a story from Zoom that they now mandate client updates every 90 days. Now, I think this is a good thing because you're in a network situation with someone else. You may not know the person. You may have gotten contacted by someone, hey, job interview or video date or I don't know. And if your client's out of date, they might be able to, let's say, access files on your computer. The thing that I don't understand is 90 days. I mean, Zoom, like Skype, sort of updates automatically. I can't imagine a lot of people being in a situation that it's not updated every 90 days unless they haven't used it for more than 90 days. Uh, just before we started recording, I went to check for updates on Zoom and there is an update available. So the next time I launch it, it will be installed for me. There was an update last week. Uh, I see updates fairly often. So this is really going to affect people who don't use Zoom very often, but it's a good thing to do. And I think Skype and other network software should do this. Yeah, th this is actually kind of interesting. I didn't know this. But uh, reading about this new feature, evidently the Zoom client software has different tracks. They have a fast track. Releases install automatically for users that enable the auto update. There's also a apparently a slow track. The re releases arrive every one to two months. And then there's a prompted versions where Zoom occasionally checks the, the version that a user is running and then prompts them to upgrade to the latest version available. I wasn't really aware that there were multiple tracks, but I, I do have auto updates enabled for it. But whenever I'm going to be on a Zoom call, which is at least once a week, because we started using Zoom instead of Skype for recording our podcasts. But I always check manually just to make sure there's not an update. And if there is, I install it. For somebody like me, who's automatically just, that's a thing that I do before I join a Zoom meeting, that's um, not going to change really anything. But if you're the kind of person who only installs the software when it prompts you that there's an update available, this might affect you because I've noticed on other people's computers that Zoom sometimes just hasn't been updated for many, many months. And then they go to join a Zoom call and now they've got to update their software. And now starting November 1st, they're going to have to update their software before they're going to be able to join a Zoom call. Okay. The United States is planning to roll out Internet of Things nutrition labels sometime in the spring. I hate this name, nutrition labels, that Apple's been using for privacy stuff. I think they, they should come up with something better. What the labels show, though, is a number of information about security. It talks about how long devices are going to get security updates. It talks about whether you need password access, multi-factor authentication, the type of data it collects. I'm not going to trust that all the companies who make these devices are going to fill these out honestly. I think it's a good start and we really need this. And I'm not sure that most people are going to pay attention, but the people who will pay attention is people in, in enterprise and in schools and places where there's lots of devices where they will specifically only buy Internet of Things devices that meet the requirements that they have. Yeah. Theoretically, this is a, a step in the right direction. Again, as long as companies are being honest about their products, then, then this is a good thing. Also, another interesting part of this is that there are different tiers or they call them levels of security, right? And so there's level one, which is meets baseline security requirements. They have level two, which adheres to the principles of security by design. There's level three, which is the absence of known common software vulnerabilities. It seems like that should be the minimum level to me. Uh, and then there's also level four, which is resistance against common cyber attacks. 
And some of the countries that are planning to use these labels are, are looking at level two as a minimum. Some are looking at level three as the minimum. I would say if you're buying a device and it does have one of these labels on it, you definitely for sure want at least level three, which again is absence of known common software vulnerabilities. That should be the baseline. I can't even believe that anyone would consider buying something that was a level two where, I don't know, there might be some software vulnerabilities. We don't really care that much. I mean, you know, who cares? It's just an IoT device. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about extreme security and privacy on the iPhone and beyond. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users for over 25 years. And our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security. Personal Backup, to keep your important files safe from ransomware. And much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Ventura and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. Okay, extreme security. What is the best level of security you can get on your iPhone? We're also going to talk about the Mac a bit because Apple introduced something they called lockdown mode with the latest operating systems. And lockdown mode is, well, Apple says it's extreme protection that's designed for the very few individuals who, because of what they are or what they do, may be personally targeted by some of the most sophisticated digital threats. Naturally, Josh has turned it on on his iPhone. Of course, that was the first thing that I did as soon as I installed iOS 16. <laughs> I'm like, oh, goody, extra security, extra protection. That's nice. I I'm not a journalist. I'm not a government agent. I'm not somebody who is necessarily the most likely to be targeted by a threat actor. But at the same time, I am somebody who does a lot of research into security vulnerabilities and things like that. And so it's possible, it's conceivable that there might be people out there who might be interested in targeting people like me. And so for that reason, and also just because I wanted to experience it and see what it was like, I thought, you know, I've got to try this out as soon as it becomes available. So lockdown mode affects a number of things, messages, web browsing, FaceTime, Apple services. And here they talk about invitations for Apple services, such as inv invitations to manage a home in the home app, etc. Shared albums and photos, device connections, connecting physically to another device, and configuration profiles. Now, you've been using this for, what, a month now? Uh, right? September. Yeah, it's been almost two months. Okay. And you've told me that there have been some limitations and some problems, but for the most part, things work as you expect, right? Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> so, uh, th th there are a number of things that Apple has done to improve device security. You mentioned a few of them. Um, one of the things that they specifically did with messages is they block certain kinds of attachments. 
One thing that a lot of people probably don't know about messages is that you can send, for example, just about any kind of file. You can send a zip file as an attachment in an iMessage to somebody else. So, for example, if you've got two people who are using a Mac and they're using the Messages app on their Mac to communicate with each other, that's one way that you could send a file to somebody else. It can be a zip file. It can be just about anything. It could even be a maliciously crafted image file. Well, that's true. And in fact, that's one of the things that Apple is blocking with messages. Certain types of images, as well as video, audio files, even certain things like link previews are completely disabled. Actually, I like the idea of disabling link previews by default. I've never, ever liked the idea that you could tap and hold and get a preview of that website because it's loading the website. Like, that's not good necessarily. What if I just want to copy that address? And we are pretty sure that maliciously crafted images were used in a number of zero-click exploits to install Pegasus, right? Right. And so the reason why, there's reasoning behind each of these things that Apple has decided to do. And one of those reasons for, you know, locking down messages in the way that they have is because they want to prevent some of these like zero click exploits. These are the types of things where, for example, somebody will send you an iMessage or a text message that contains a file that is maliciously crafted and your operating system will interpret the file in such a way that it could execute malicious code and, for example, install spyware like the Pegasus spyware on your device. And so Apple is doing things to sort of prevent those kind of things that have been used in the past from happening again to people with lockdown mode enabled. So web browsing, you said that there are some problems with web browsing that are a bit of a deal breaker for you, aren't they? Almost, almost a deal breaker. Yeah, this is the most egregious thing, I think, of all the mitigations that Apple has implemented. The hardest to deal with is that a lot of websites use remote fonts. And that is one of the main things that Apple has killed when you're using lockdown mode. You cannot load a web page and see these fonts that are sometimes critical to being able to use a website. So that means that they're using fonts that you don't have on your computer because they have a very specific font for their design. Right. And so the idea of web fonts, they, they've been around for a long time. And essentially what happens is that you you load a web page. It wants to make sure that, well, first of all, it could just be just a font, right? It could just be that they want you to see their web page with a particular font and they don't want to rely on you having a particular operating system that happens to have that font installed by default. So that's one scenario. But the other thing that I'm discovering is happening a lot of places on the internet is that they're using these fonts as a way to put, for example, like um, a Twitter icon or something or buttons or menu icons or other things like this. So when you go to load a web page where you might normally see the three vertical lines, the hamburger, you know, which indicates that that button is a menu you won't see that necessarily anymore. In some cases, if they're using a custom font to show that hamburger icon, you're just going to see a square, indicating that that character could not be loaded because that font is not available. Imagine that you go to a website and they've got a whole bunch of buttons across the top, and normally you'd be able to see exactly what those are. 
And now you just can't. And it, it makes it very difficult to use certain websites. Um, I've been kind of experimenting with the Mastodon social network recently. And when you're looking at that in a web browser with lockdown mode enabled, you have no remote fonts. And it, well, it turns out that all of the interface elements, all the buttons use remote fonts. It's interesting because that just explained why I have problems with certain software. I bought a couple of audio plugins to use with Logic Pro, and in the interface for the software, all I see is squares. So I had to go to the website to see what it looks like to find out what the different options are to click. And it's because for some reason the font's not loading. So I will have to check this out. The other thing that's annoying about this feature is that every single time that you go into any app, the first time that it ever loads HTML content, web content, it puts up a dialog box. The dialog box says lockdown mode is turned on for, and it names the app, certain experiences and features may not function as expected. You can turn off lockdown mode for this app and settings, and you can hit okay, but you get this all the time. And I've been, again, I've been using this for two months and I'm still seeing this on a regular basis because the first time that I happen to load web content in an app that I've been using for years, it puts up this dialog box. So you're saying lockdown mode is granular. It's not all or nothing. You can choose to turn it on for specific apps. Yeah, that is interesting that you can turn off lockdown mode for particular apps and settings, but by default, everything has lockdown mode enabled. So... You're in contact with a bad guy and he says, okay, you've got to run this app. And well, I can't see it. Well, you have to turn off lockdown mode because the app doesn't work right. Exactly. Yeah. So (laughs) this is kind of a potential problem. You probably do want to leave lockdown mode on for just about every app. There might be exceptions to that. Again, this is one of those things that you've got to really carefully consider. If you're using lockdown mode because you feel like you might be a target, then you probably don't want to turn off lockdown mode for any apps. Okay. So I learned about something last week called Graphene OS. And the reason I heard about this is that Edward Snowden on Twitter says he uses this all the time. I got to say, if Edward Snowden uses security software, given his experience and given his exposure, it's probably pretty solid. It is a private and secure mobile operating system with Android app compatibility. Now, it's not for the iPhone. You have to use an Android phone. But I thought it'd be interesting to discuss this a bit in case you really do need even more hardened security than on the iPhone. Now, you know a bit about Graphene OS. So tell us about this. If you have certain phone models, particularly Google Pixel phones, you can reload the operating system and put on a complete replacement OS. So Graphene OS has all the essential guts, but without all the googly stuff, right? So it doesn't have any Google services enabled, which means you're not able to use the Google Play Store. And apps that rely on Google services in order to function properly will not run on this operating system. So already that sounds like something that may not be for everybody. Well, they do say it is possible to install Play Services as a set of fully sandboxed app without special privileges via our sandboxed Google Play compatibility layer. So you can use them, but they're sandboxed, so you're going to be protected, right? Well, theoretically. <laughs> this theoretically. Do, this okay. does sound a little bit better, though, than just using stock Android. Again, you don't know what additional vulnerabilities you're going to have just getting whatever the manufacturer wants to sell you with whatever preloaded apps and all that kind of thing. There are other alternative 
Android operating systems out there. One that I've used in the past is Lineage OS, which is a nice one if you have older Android hardware that cannot run the latest version of the Android operating system. Lineage OS is a way that you can run a new operating system on older hardware. But Graphene OS, yeah, is specifically designed with security and privacy in mind. That's the number one driving reason for the development of this operating system. So they support a number of Google Pixel phones. It's interesting that there's no Google services, but the Google Google phones are the one that they trust. Now, they also say many other devices are supported by Graphene OS at a source level, and it can be built for them without modifications to the existing Graphene OS source tree, which means you can get the source code and compile it yourself, correct? Yeah, if you know how to do that kind of thing. So That sounds like fun. (laughs) That would require you to be a much more knowledgeable individual who knows how to do a lot of things beyond the basic user. Okay, so we've talked about using Lock lockdown mode on the iPhone, and we've talked about using Graphene OS on Android. What about lockdown mode on the Mac? Because it exists. Right. Yeah. As of Mac OS Ventura, this is a, a new feature. And just like on iOS 16, you can turn on lockdown mode on your Mac as well. I'm probably not going to use this. Again, the, based on my experience with this on the iPhone, I feel like this is not an experience that I would want to have on my Mac. There are more things that you can do to mitigate potential security vulnerabilities on your Mac. For example, there's lots of browser extensions that you can use that block ads and other content by default when you load a web page. You have choice when it comes to the browser that you're using. You're not just locked into browsers that are using WebKit. I think it's a bit surprising that in messages, both on Mac and iOS, you can't turn off link previews, whereas you can prevent images from loading in mail. Yeah, the, well, so what what I remember from iOS 15, and it's been a couple months since I've used it, but I, although you could not turn off the image that loads, like if somebody texts you a link to an article, you'll get a preview image that loads in your messages app without any interaction on your part. That, I don't think there was a way to turn that off previously before um, lockdown mode in iOS 16. A couple more things that I found annoying with lockdown mode. By default, incoming FaceTime calls are blocked. This is good. I actually think that's a good thing. But the problem is that even if somebody has previously called you, even if you have somebody in your family sharing group who tries to send you a FaceTime call, it won't go through. You have to send them a FaceTime call first, then they'll be able to do that afterward. And that starts from the moment that you enable lockdown mode. So even if you've gotten FaceTime calls from them before, you have to initiate a FaceTime call if you ever want them to be able to FaceTime call you. A little bit annoying. Another thing that I found annoying is that shared albums in the Photos app is something that you just can't do anymore in lockdown mode. Unfortunately, you have to go now to another device that doesn't have lockdown mode enabled if you want to view these shared photo albums. That's kind of annoying, but I understand why they did this because this was used in a particular targeted attack once. Apple has since mitigated the particular vulnerability that was used in that case, but now just in case someone finds another vulnerability with shared albums, they've just decided to turn it off for everybody who's using lockdown mode. Okay, so you know about lockdown mode, you know about Graphene OS if you want to make a really secure Android phone if you're really at risk, 
And I'm curious if anyone is actually using lockdown mode on an iPhone, iPad, or Mac. Drop us an email at podcast at intigo.com. Josh, until next week, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.